0: Uh, have you ever had to rely on something? Like, you know, rely on your spouse. Uh, That's a bad one. How about uh, (laughs) about rely on your car? Uh, That's a bad one too. I spent an enormous amount on my cars last year. It was a terrible year, 2018. How about uh, friends? You ever had to rely on your friends? How about your job? Like when you think about it, like what you had to rely on, there's a lot of things we just kind of rely on. Your paycheck, getting in your bank, your you know, you just kind of rely on, like when you turn on something and you expect it to work, you kind of rely on it to work, right? And then when it doesn't work, you're going, what in the world? Something's wrong, right? You, you naturally rely on certain things. It's a normal kind of everyday thing. Now, some things I rely on, I don't question them at all. Other things I rely on, I kind of put my life at risk. Last year, last year, last month, we, we uh, flew our oldest daughter out to Los Angeles. She's going to school out there. And so we all piled on the plane and we, we got ready to take off on the plane. Uh, and I'm glad to say we made it there and back on planes that didn't have any issues. Now I got to tell you, at some point, I never actually sat down on that plane and thought to myself, Do, should I rely on this thing to take off and land properly? Think of how many things I had to rely on for that, right? I, I didn't have to get up in the morning and, and say, I've got to get to the airport early so I can just look at the, look at the uh, airplane and make sure that it's aerodynamically correct and we're actually going to get the lift we need in order to take off and we're going to land properly. I, I just took it for granted that somebody else did that. I never, I never prayed and said, God, with the Borelli, uh, eff, uh, Ber, Bernally, Bernoulli effect, if you're a pilot here, you're going to laugh at that, if that's working, you know what the Bernoulli effect is? Bernoulli effect is, I looked this up, because school was a long time ago. When you take off, the lift is, uh, the, the, the pressure of the air on the, on the wings decreases as the speed increases. And so that's what creates the lift. That's called the Bernoulli effect. And I didn't get up in the morning and say, Lord, please help the Bernoulli effect to work so that we can take off today. I didn't inspect the plane. I, I, didn't, even, I didn't even interview the pilot. He might have been out partying the night before. I didn't come in into a split and say, you know, are you, are you fit to fly? How long have you been flying? Could you show me your resume? I never did any of that. I assumed the pilot knew what he was doing. I never, uh, <coughs> I never questioned the technology. Is the technology going to go haywire? I just assumed the technology was working properly. Now, that's an absurd illustration, but think how many times you rely on things that even would put your life at risk. How many things do we rely on, even without thinking? And here the question is this morning. Where should I go to rely on the proper instructions for living my life? Where is the right place for me to visit so that I can find out and rely on the information that is given to me and that it is proper, it is right, and it will work? Most people don't even rely on anything. like They don't even even conceive such a question. But the question I want to ask this morning is, where can I go for answers to life and death? And how can I be sure that the truth that I'm receiving is actually true? Today, we're going to be talking about, is the Bible reliable? And I'm pleased to tell you that God has supernaturally chosen to give us a revelation, something that we can rely on, that we can actually read. In God's good providence, he has preserved for us the truth in reading material. Now, imagine a world where we didn't have the Bible, where we didn't have this reading material. Think of all the questions that we would have. Does God exist? What's his name? What kind of being is he? Does he speak? Has he ever spoken? What makes him happy? What makes him sad? Do I make him happy? Do I make him sad? And we wouldn't have any way to have those questions answered. Science does not give us any of these answers. Only one place gives us the answers to these questions. Without the Bible, we would have to surmise at all of these answers. But God has given us an enormous amount of information and clarity, and he has done so for our benefit. He did this on purpose so that we don't go through life with a thousand questions left unanswered. Let's talk about the Bible this morning. Where did the Bible come from? Well, a couple of things you need to know right off the bat, all right? Let's get these right out of the way. The Bible did not fall from heaven as a leather-bound book. The Bible did not get handed to anybody by an angel. Never happened. In fact, let me go out on a limb here. No book has ever been handed to anybody By an angel. Right? The Bible was not dug up in a farmer's field like golden plates under a big rock. The Bible was not suddenly discovered in a clay jar with 66 books in it. The Bible is not one book, but it is a collection of books. The Bible was not written at once, but it was written over a 1,500-year time period. And it was written... Uh, not in English, but in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible is a very unique book. and We're going to talk about that this morning. Why is it such an important thing that we know some truths about God's Word? Well, it's important for us because if we believe it, we should know something about it. Where did the 66 books come from? The 66 books that we have in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, are what we call the canon. The canon actually means, the word we call it canon, the word means a read or a standard of measure. In other words, all of the books that are included in the Bible have met a certain standard of measure in order to be included in the 66 books. If I gave you a job this morning, if we had this room right over here, closed it off and filled it with bunny rabbits... And some of them were uh, bunnies, and some of them were chickens. And I were to send you in there and say, okay, could you pick for, out for me all of the bunny rabbits? You would probably not have a hard time distinguishing the bunny rabbits from the chickens. Now, if you do have a hard time with that, we probably have some phone numbers to give you afterwards. We could, we could talk to you about that. But most people wouldn't have a hard time figuring out the difference between a bunny rabbit and a chicken. The 66 books of the Bible were all chosen because they met specific qualifications that determined if they went in the Bible that you now hold in your hands today. They were scrutinized so that only the ones that met the qualifications were chosen and placed in the canon, the 66 books. How did the early church decide which ones would be included and which ones wouldn't? Well, there was a variety of tests, but I've kind of boiled them down into four easily maybe understandable things so that at least you can kind of know this as we, uh, as we go out of here today. Number one, Jesus. That's always a good one to start with, right? Jesus is a good one to start with. In other words, if Jesus quoted from the book, most likely it is reliable. Would you agree with that? Yes, so that is one of the ways you tell what a bunny rabbit is from a chicken. If if this book that Jesus quoted from was reliable enough for him, it should be reliable enough for us. Number two, apostolicity. (laughs) Say that seven times. Apostolicity is simply this. The apostles used books frequently. They quoted from them frequently. In fact, you may not know this, but the apostles quoted from the Old Testament... In the New Testament, an enormous amount of times. In fact, there are only five books not quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Did you know that? So the apostles vindicated, verified the reliability of Old Testament books simply because they they use them on a regular basis. And so the early church said, well, if the apostles used them, most likely they are reliable. To this end, those included in the Bible, uh, they were only seriously considered if they were found before the second century A.D., because that's when the last apostle died. And so these books were chosen before that time. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, Craig, that's really important, but it's really good to know, but why do the Catholics and the Protestants have a different Bible? You ever ask yourself that question? This is a big part of that question. The extra books in the Catholic version of the Bible were put there after the 2nd century A.D. The books that are in the Protestant version of the Bible, those were put there and canonized before uh, the 2nd century A.D. What happened was there was a couple extra books that people would talk about and quote from, and, uh, and they got to be popular because the population liked quoting them, like Bell and the Dragon, or if you know any of these, uh, these books from the Old Testament that... Um, that are popular in the in the Catholic Bible. Uh, some of these were chosen just because they were stories told over and over and over again. And the Catholics held a council at Trent in 1545. Say 1545. How far is that after the second century? Uh, it's a long time. At the Council of Trent in 1545, that's when they validated seven more books that did not meet all the qualifications, all the criteria that are put into the original canon. All right, Just so you know that. See, you learned something today. Consistency is the third one. Consistency is simply they had to meet the character of confirmed writings. In other words, they had to sound the same. They had to look the same. They had to same, have the same field. And the last one is orthodoxy. They had to agree with all the other books that were written before them. And so when, the, when our Bible was canonized in the, uh, uh, in, in the, uh, before the second century... All of these books were put under rigorous uh, rigorous, um, uh, scrutiny so that they would meet the qualifications to fit the canon. The Bible is a miraculous document. Some things you may not know about it. There's a wonder of its formation, the way in which it grew. It grew over 40 different authors in the Bible. Did you know that? There's 40 different authors. It It was made over three different continents over 1,500 years and it all agrees with itself. There's a wonder of its unification. It's a library of 66 books, yet everyone agrees with itself on every page. There's a wonder of its age. It's the most ancient that we have of all books. It's a wonder of its sale. It's bestseller time of all books ever written. It's a wonder of its interest. It's the only one read by all chosen, uh, uh, all different races and all classes of people. There's a wonder of its language. It's written largely by uneducated men. And it's one of the most studied books in the entire history of the world. This is one of its preservation. It's the most hated of all books. Yet it continues to thrive and exist over 3,000 years of people desperately trying to get rid of it. Burning it in the streets and trying to get get it out of people's hands. In North Korea, if you have a section of the Bible on you, written on it, anything... God loves you, uh, for God so loved the world, any part of that, you will be arrested and put into a camp, and people will likely not hear from you any longer. So to this day, this book still goes under great persecution. The Bible is miraculous in its unity. I am constantly amazed by prophecy John and I talk about prophecy every once in a while, and it just amazes me how many prophecies Jesus Christ fulfilled. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah talks about how Jesus would look, where Jesus would live, how Jesus would be rejected, how Jesus would die, how Jesus would behave. Everything about Jesus was written 700 years before Jesus was even born, written by the prophet Isaiah. In just two chapters, chapter 52 and 53 in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, there are 20 specific prophecies about Jesus Christ and every one of them became, came true in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's tons of Old Testament uh, uh, activities and prophecies that point toward Jesus Christ. The very action of Passover, which Orthodox Jews still do today, the very uh, action of, Orth- uh, of, uh, of Passover is, is filled to the brim with pictures of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite is when they put the matzah, they'll put a matzah in between three levels of, uh, of a cloth, a napkin. And they'll have the top one, they'll have the middle one, they'll have the bottom one. And during the Passover, they'll take out the bottom one and they'll hide it in the house. And then they eat the dinner for a little while, and then they send the kids to go find the, the hidden matzah. And then they'll go find it and they'll come and they'll retrieve it and they'll bring it back. And they'll put it back into, into the sleeve I find that very interesting because there are three parts of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the only part of the Godhead that was ever separated from the three at one point of time was Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When he was separated on the cross, he cried, My Father, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he was restored after his resurrection. Symbols of the Passover are all over the place. No bones of the lamb are supposed to be broken. When Jesus hung on the cross, no bones would be broken. In Psalm, it says that no bones would be broken. They celebrate that every time in the Passover. They have to eat all of it quickly before the next day. Uh, Passover, why did they do that? Because they had to put blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their houses. And even in that, you've got these, these people that are slaying open a lamb. Way back in Moses' day, when they're going to get rescued from Egypt, they slid open the this animal, they take the blood and they put the, door, they put the blood, not on the door. They don't slap it on the door. They don't throw it on the, on, the, on the doorstep. They put it on the sides and the tops of the house. On the sides and the tops of the door. On the side and the top of the door. You get the symbol of the cross there? The psalmist writes about Jesus Christ constantly. In Psalm 22, one of the best Illustrations we have was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Eight hundred years before any Roman walked the planet. And here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 22 verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar to you? written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Listen, the Bible is one book written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. And everything it says about Jesus Christ was exact, was accurate, and was to the point. And Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies. The Bible is miraculous in its preservation. Archaeology just keeps backing up the claims of the Bible. You'll see every once in a while, you'll turn on the news and they'll say, oh, we found out Jesus was married, you know, or something like that. We have a manuscript and it shows that the Bible is completely wrong. And then they dig in a little further and they go, oh, our bad. It's not written by anybody. That was uh, written by some kid somewhere in the bathroom. But we're constantly finding out new parchments of the Bible. We find them as early as 25 years after the last apostle died. 25 years afterwards, we have writings about uh, about uh, Jesus and his life and earliest copies of the Bible. In comparison, just so you know, the Quran was uh, the earliest copy of the Quran that we have is from 688 AD. That's 56 years after Muhammad died. Even the Quran encourages readers to look to the people of the book for clarification on certain uh, passages in the Quran. Did you know that? People of the book refer to those who believe the Torah and Christians. In other words, people who were already using a reliable book. We have more manuscripts from the Bible that we ha- than we have from William Shakespeare's own hand. Did you know that? We have more manuscripts available than we do from anything William Shakespeare wrote. Here's a, here's a chart uh, just for uh, comparison. You can see when all of these things, manuscript for ancient writings, Caesar. It uh, was written 10 to 44 B.C. Earliest copy we have of that is 900 A.D. That's a 1,000 years later. Plato, uh, earliest copy we have of that is 1,200 years after him. Uh, you have El- Elisabeth, even Homer's Iliad is 500 years uh, after him. But for the New Testament, it was 25 years afterwards. And the earliest copy we have of that is 125 A.D. Some people say it's even shorter than that, up to 40 years afterwards. Uh, 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 that we have the earliest copy. But the earliest copy that we have uh, of the uh, New Testament manuscripts is 125 A.D. And look at the, on the end, see the number of manuscripts. Caesar, we got 10 original ones. We call them original, but they were 1,000 years afterwards. Plato, we got seven. Um, Homer, we've got 643. That's pretty good. But of the New Testament, how many do we have, church? 24,000. And not one of them disagree with the other. (laughs) Because if they did, you'd hear about it. To this date, we found almost 6,000 parchments, not manuscripts, but individual pieces, parchments, of ancient copies of the New Testament, some dating back to 125 A.D. And to this date, none have disagreed. No matter how reliable the Bible is in its making, no matter how reliable it is in its structure or its message, here's the bottom line, though. You still have to trust it. Now, I could tell you a lot of things about the Bible. It's miraculous in its construction. It was carefully examined for inclusion. We already talked about that. Everything was put into specific order. The Gospels come first in the New Testament because they're all about Jesus. Paul's letters follow after that because he was considered to be one of the greatest and clearest New Testament authors. Uh, Revelation comes last because it's our hopeful book. Some books were totally rejected. Uh, some Gospels didn't make it in. Have you heard about the Gnostic Gospels? You're sitting here thinking, well, you we should talk about the Gnostic Gospels. Maybe you've heard about the Gnostic Gospels. They, they are popular these days. Uh, you've heard of Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas. Uh, if you ever think that these should be included, by the way, don't take people's word for it. Just kind of take a read yourself. They're kind of an interesting uh, bit of uh, of, uh, of writing it's very clear that they that they disagree. In fact, I think it's the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Thomas. One of them ends with the disciples complaining about Mary because she's always around. Mary's always here. She always bugging us. Get Mary to go away. And uh, and Jesus said, Oh no no no! Don't worry. Uh, Mary one day will be turned into a man, so we will be able to accept her as a group. Yeah, you don't believe that's true? Take a look. I mean, all of this stuff is. But but the world will not. The the culture will not tell you this stuff. Read it for yourself. And you can easily tell that's a chicken, not a bunny rabbit, right? Jesus would never talk about that, talk like that about women or men, ever. These Gnostic Gospels actually are found in what we call the Nag Hammadi Library and they date from the 2nd century after Christ. Remember, this is the extra writings. They lacked every single one of the criteria found to include them in the canon. They they they, They didn't... Uh, meet any of the qualifications in fact if you look at history the early church writers after the second century all wrote against the gnostic gospels they called them heretical writings so you're wondering why the gnostic gospels didn't make it that's why Um, gnosticism reached its zenith in the second century and what they did was they ripped off new testament authors to start making new stories like the story of jesus that made a bird out of clay that flew away have you heard that one Yeah, that's found in the same book, in the same Gnostic book, where he pushes his friend off a roof. Jesus pushes his friend off a roof, just playing around. Kid dies, so he goes downstairs downstairs in the building, and he brings him back to life. Shazam. Chicken, not a bunny rabbit. Easily distinguishable. Unless you think Jesus likes pushing little kids off roofs. All right. I could tell you about its inerrance, its accuracy. Noah's Ark. You ever wonder why God puts certain, he doesn't do it all the time, but once in a while he'll put like details in and you're like, you're reading the details and you're just going, oh, this is killing me. <laughs> right? And most of the words you don't understand and most of the people you've never heard of, most of the nations you didn't even know existed, right? You're just wading through this stuff. If You read through Noah's Ark, you'll find a chunk like that about how big the boat should be, what kind of dimensions it should have. And you're reading through it and you're going, I don't know what a cubit is. I don't care what a cubit is. Interestingly enough the length-to-width ratios in Genesis were found to be ideal for making a large barge boat. And this was, get ready for this, a thousand years before any large barge boat was ever constructed. Same dimensions, perfect for a large barge boat. Until then, they had boats that were like, you know, big boats, but not, not like this. And lo and behold, they float. How about the flat earth theory? Right? It kills me that the church persecuted people for, not, for believing that the earth was not flat. Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, thinking the earth was round or flat. Flat. Had no idea the earth was round. Nobody did. Even when he found America, he th- thought he was in the wrong place. Or he thought he was in the right place, he was in the wrong place. And lo and behold... If you read Isaiah, again, written 700 years before Jesus Christ, it says in Isaiah 40, talking about God, he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Sphere of the earth, I think it says in the King James Version. The circle of the earth. Biblical sites, they're finding them all the time, and they think to themselves, this is wrong in the Bible, and lo and behold, it all backs up. Archaeology continues to back up. Biblical sites that are listed from way, way long ago. I could tell you about its preservation and copying. One of my favorite stories is the Dead Sea Scrolls. You ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? In 1940s, uh, this kid was walking his goats around, and he comes by this cave uh, in Qumran, and he throws a, story goes, throws a rock in the cave to hear it ping against the walls, and he hears something break, so he goes inside and he finds all of these jars and these jars have manuscripts in them. He, uh, so he tells somebody, they go down, they pull out all the jars, and lo and behold, shazam, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. They pulled these Dead Sea Scrolls out. This was an amazing find. They were probably written between 200 B.C. and 68 A.D. That's right during the time of Jesus. Now get this, this is great. They were probably hidden by the religious community when the nation went under attack by the Roman general Vespasian. Presumably... They were hid just a few years before or after Jesus died in order to preserve them for future generations. And the copies that they found in this cave, Old Testament copies in this cave, they pulled them out, they put them together with our Bibles, and they found them to be almost word perfect. In fact, two entire scrolls of Isaiah were found, and they were almost absolutely word perfect. Now, keep in mind, these were buried in 68, not 1968. They were buried in 68. They were buried. And then other manuscripts were copied, 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 copied. Copy, 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 copy. Until you get your Bible today and you're thinking to yourself, I played the telephone game. If somebody says something to somebody else and they said it to somebody else and said it somebody else, it's going to sound a whole lot different, right? And if the book has been copied that many times, it's going to look a whole lot different unless you find the original stuff—not the original stuff, but close to where we can get to the original. Pull it out of a cave, put it, compare it to what you've been copied, copy, 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 copied, and find it to be almost word perfect for true. That blows me away. That tells me there's something miraculous about how God preserved His Bible. I could tell you fact after fact after fact why you should rely on the accuracy of this book. I've left out a bunch of stuff. Somebody told me, they said, Craig, I saw your notes. Don't say all that stuff because you're going to go way over this morning. I left a bunch on the cutting floor. But it doesn't matter how many times, how many details, how many facts I can give you about how trustworthy the Bible is. The bottom line is you won't rely on it unless you choose to. There's an intellectual convincing. I could look outside and say, there's white snow on the ground. But this is something more. Until God intervenes, we never find the ability to rely on it. We'll continue to see it as an amazing book, maybe even a miraculous book, but not something that we can rely on. Just like the plane... It's too much to rely on it for my life. You can tell me how aerodynamic the plane is. You can show me the pilot, and he's been flying for 30 years. You can take me through the class after class after class on how this particular plane is intended and built to fly. I can trust it. But until I get on the plane and buckle in with the 12 people beside me and seats made for one, I know... I never will go, am going to rely on this plane. And until I see this book as something that can change my life for a life that pleases God, I'm never going to rely on it. I'm never going to trust in it. Some will still be too terrified to trust that plane. And some are still too terrified to trust that this book is from God. Why do some of us rely so much on what the Bible tells us when others simply cannot? Now, that was all my introduction. Yeah, intermission. Here's the important stuff. Would you take your Bibles if you've got them? And if you don't, it's up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 3.12. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture that makes this very, very clear. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12. By the way, if you have questions while you're turning there in your Bibles, if you have questions about any of this, I put on the bottom of the screen, uh, I do a podcast every Wednesday. Uh, We get questions that come in after the services that we do on all these topics. And if you have questions, right now in your seat, you can text 555-888, text East Sermon to 555-888, and that question will go into our database, and I'll tackle it this week on Wednesday. So if that tickles your fancy, you can do that this morning. If you're thinking to yourself, What's a Qumran? All right, just fill it in and, and send it, all right? right, Second Corinthians 3.12, listen to this. God tells us, since we have such a high hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that's the Old Testament for you and me, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ it is taken away. Moses in the Old Testament received direct in, uh, revelation from God. He had to go to a place where he would talk to God. God would give him the revelation. And then when he came out of the tent, his face would shine. Do you remember that? Have you ever seen, uh, have you ever seen uh, is it Michelangelo's Moses? Who did Moses? Anyway, you've seen Moses with the horns on his head? That statue, famous statue of Moses with the horns on his head? Uh, Now I've made a bad illustration. But anyway, uh, in one of the translations, the word for face shining is the same as horns. And so if you see Moses, there's this famous statue with Moses with his horns on his head. But That's a a, a picture of him coming out of this tent with his face shining. It made a lasting impression. When the people looked at him, it was so bright that they couldn't even stand to look at him. So they had to put a bag over his head. And he had to talk like this, out of the bag. Moses would communicate these words, the message that God had given to them, to him. And the words were life-changing. Moses said, we've got to live these words out. We've got to obey these words. God wants us to do this. We've got to do it. And the people would listen, and they would go, yes, his face is shining. He was with God. Let's obey God. And they would go out of that, and and they would try their best to obey what God had told them to obey. They didn't have the Old Testament. They only had this guy whose face is shining to tell them what God said. We have that all in the Old Testament. They didn't have that. So they would do their best. But life would challenge their memory of Moses' speeches. Time would tear down their ability to rely on divine words. Culture would pound on the walls of their determination to live out God's truth. And over time, they would give up. They would forget. They would stop relying on the message of God. But then Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus came all the walls of confusion and disbelief were torn down. Jesus Christ gives us this unique ability to read God's Word and get something out of it that can be life-changing and lasting. Moses didn't have that. When you accept the truth of Jesus Christ as presented in the Word, the spiritual veil is finally removed and you get it. You go, ah! You ever read a passage of Scripture and you just go, oh... But when you're an unbeliever, when you don't understand the reliability and the truth of God's Word, if you just see it as a textbook, it's something worth studying, but not life-changing. you go to read it you're going to go, that is, that is really smart. Alright, let's go do something else. But when you're a Christian, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you read the words, you go, oh. And it changes your life. Read on verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. They might like portions of God's word. They might like—I've met people—they like the Torah, they like the Sermon on the Mount, they like the Ten Commandments. Everybody likes the Golden Rule. Sure, we like it, but it doesn't change us. We like the words in the, on the black on the on the white page, but we—but it doesn't do anything for us. God's word is meant to be reliable to change our lives on a regular basis to make us into something we're not now to make us into something more to turn us into the very image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the words are not magic but the message is inspired. Those who still read the Bible with the veil over cannot understand how it is one complete and full revelation of of God that testifies to the authenticity of Jesus Christ. They'll never be able to rely on it. But when we accept the truth that Jesus Christ is revealed on every page, we understand that the Word of God is really reliable. And the Holy Spirit helps us here. Read on. Now the Lord is spirit, verse 17. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what, church? Oh, come on. Like, do it like, uh, like that guy that paints his face blue. Uh... Come on, come on. What's his name? Braveheart. Yeah, let's do it one more time. Like Braveheart. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is... <laughs> well, you may not know the Bible, but you know your movies. That's good. <laughs> when you read god's word it's meant to be something that changes you that you can rely on that that will make you into something you're not now and something that god can be proud of and when that happens you find a freedom you never know any other way how do we get the veil off well in moses day his buddies had to come and take the veil off as his face started to turn back to normal they would take the veil off for him and people would go oh good to have you back moses But in our day, the Holy Spirit removes the veil of unbelief so that we can read God's Word and say, it is more than a book. It is a life-changing manual to life and death. I can rely on it. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand the message of who Jesus Christ really is. And when that happens, (laughs) Jesus' words are better than those of the prophets. They're better than those of the prophets. Hebrews one. Spirit of the Lord lifts the veil and helps us understand what the Lord has done for us. The entire message of the gospel. That's why it says, down in verse eighteen, for we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the what church? Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, for this comes from the Lord whose Spirit. Who is the one image that we're all being transformed into? Jesus. You may be Canadian. You may be American. You may be Korean. You may be, you know, pick, pick your slot. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter what you're going to go through. The Word of God is meant to be relied on so that we can all turn into one image. Not so you can look like me, God forbid. Not so you can look like Ron, God forbid. The Word of God is there so that we can all together turn into more of an image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we rely on it. We trust it. The Spirit of God transforms our behaviors, our plans, our values, our relationships, everything about us to look more like Jesus Christ. Our submission to God's authority and His Word proves and, and establishes our devotion to how much we actually rely on God's Word. Jesus' own words. He said, you've heard, you've, you've heard all of this preaching before. Let me just give it to you in a nutshell. This is how He concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7:24, "Everyone then who hears these words of whose church?" Yeah, interesting. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came, the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. What does it mean to rely on something? <laughs> Traveling on a plane, you can rely on physics, structure, emotional stability of the pilot. But you won't really test that reliability until you put yourself in a seat and take off. So the real question is this. Can I rely on the Bible to live my life in a healthy and productive and God-pleasing way? That's the question. The Bible is reliable because it had been it is endured every test of time, studied and dissected for the purpose of discrediting its reliability, historians, scholars, skeptics, archaeologists, and to this day, 4,000 years of this kind of banter and this kind of onslaught against the Bible, and not one word has been proven wrong. The Bible is reliable when it's used as God intended. It's not intended as a let's go manual for getting around Jerusalem. You remember those let's go books? It's not intended as a travel guide. It's not intended to find out how to grow proper olive trees on the Mount of Olives. God's word is given so that we can learn more about how to live our lives in a way that pleases our God. For all you want of people, you're going to love this one. Second Timothy 3:14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it and from how. From childhood, Paul says to Timothy. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Bible, which are able to make you, say this with me, church, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says, all Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God, inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is meant so that we we can not just study it, but so that we can hide it in our hearts so that we don't sin against God. The word equipped here is the word exertizo. Does that sound like anything you know? How about exert? Have you ever had to exert yourself in some way? When you exert yourself, you become... You, 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 you get into a suitable state of action. You exert yourself when you, when you put in the last rep of those ten that are killing you. You exert yourself for that final push. We are meant to exercise ourselves in the truth of God's Word. It's meant to be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and the choices we make in life, bread for our sustenance, what gives us strength, honey to our taste, what we crave. It's meant to be what we hide in our hearts so that we don't sin. The Bible is meant to be not only read, but relied upon. Number three, the Bible is reliable because Jesus relied on it. That's a good one, right? Look to Jesus as your example. He wouldn't rely on anything else. How many times did Jesus say, it is, oh, you know that, it is written. Why wouldn't he just say, forget everything you know, I want to tell you some stuff you can remember now. Okay, you don't read, eh, that's okay. Forget about that stuff. I want to give it to you in an ABC version. Never did that. Jesus said, "It is written," or he would say to people that he was particularly perturbed at, "Haven't you heard or haven't you read?" Where did this information come from? Come from? It came from God's word that was already written. Do you know when Jesus went into battle with the devil in the wilderness? Do you know what he used? He used God's Word. He used God's Word. He tempted of the devil, and every time. He's the Son of God. He could have done like, I'm done with you, Satan. Go out of, you're out of here, right? No, no, no. He did battle with the written Word of God. Here's one verse, Matthew 4, four. This is one of the verses he used. He answered, It is written, man shall not live by what church? Bread alone, Bread alone but by, quote it with me, every word that comes from the mouth of where do you find the words that come from the mouth of God? In God's Word. That's why we call it God's Word. The words of God. If Jesus thought it was reliable, shouldn't we? In fact, you only have one weapon as a believer. Do you know what it is? Uh, uh, you, you've got a lot of defensive mechanisms, right? You've got the breastplate of righteousness and hallowed of salvation, the shield of, of faith. You've got the feet, out of the preparation of the Gospel. You've got, the, the, you got all that stuff on, right? Belt of truth. Yippee. What is the one thing you have to actually do damage to the other person? Sword, and it's called the sword of the Spirit, right? this sword is meant to be the Word of God that pierces through, that changes minds, and that shows where we, where we are flawed. Last one. The Bible will be found to be reliable only when we use it. We value God's word because we want to use it, not so that we know it. say that one more time, because it's worth a tweet. Uh, let's redeem Twitter, what do you say? It's, uh, we value God's word because we want to use it, not so that we can just know it. The story of a seminary student that went to Dallas Theological Seminary wrote Swindoll a letter on his graduation. Said, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Swindoll, for accepting me in. And my graduation is a big day. My family's proud of me. And I just want to tell you some things that happened to me while I was in seminary. I came into seminary loving Jesus. That's why I came to seminary in the first place, I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to know more of God's word so that I could use it to do the work of the Lord, do the work of the kingdom. And I studied it, and I dissected it, and I pulled it apart, and I learned the languages. And I found the nuances. And after four years of intense study, I've graduated, finding that I no longer love Jesus, I love the Word. That is awful. We do not learn the Word of God so that we can idolize the Bible. That's how you get dead churches. We love God's word because it tells us more about who he is but we love it most because it makes us look more like jesus ephesus was an amazing church read the book of ephesians commended for their faith their devotion to the truth and after 40 years you get to the book of revelation chapter two and one of the churches the church at ephesus is said to be completely abhorrent to god not because they forgot what was in God's Word, but because they forgot to love the person who wrote it. They no longer loved Jesus. And so God said to them, I wish you were hot, I wish you were cold, but because you're neither, I'd just rather you weren't around at all. How would you like to be a church like that? And do you know how many churches there are like that? At Village Church, I was talking to Michael we used to judge spiritual maturity by what we know about the Bible. But now we judge spiritual maturity by how the Bible's changing our lives. We judge spiritual maturity through spiritual formation and mission. And if we're not living the Word, we don't love the Word. We idolize it, but we don't really love the God who, who penned it, who used His, his uh, men to pen it, in, inspired by his, by his own voice. You know God's Word is valued when it is relied on in real time. Words are powerful. There's no more powerful words than are found in God's Word. God's Word can fix a liar, correct gossip, heal and bring peace. God's Word can change a life. It is meant to make a difference. But the real question is, has God's Word word changed you? Has God's Word changed me? Because if it hasn't, it's just a book. But I'm here to tell you, It's so much more than that. How has God's word impacted your parenting, your serving, your relationships, your ability to be a better worker, your servant heart, your ability to serve your husband or your spouse, your wife or your kids? How has it affected your giving, your rebellious heart or your pride? How has God's word been reliable to you? Is it reliable? You bet. But how does it demonstrate itself in your life? How does it demonstrate itself in mine? Challenging, right? Thank God for his word. Let's pray. So Father, we come to the end of our time looking into your word, talking about your word. I am very, very grateful that you have preserved for us the truth. Where would we be without your word? Where would we be had you not preserved it through all onslaughts of time? Thank you that it's not just a book, but thank you that it changes lives. Not because it's magical, but because it reveals to us your will for our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be like Moses and hear it, but forget about it. But We can have it in our hands, and we can hold it in our hearts, and we can hide it in our souls. And it can be the thing that guides us not only through this life to live a life that pleases you, but it can guide us into victory in the life to come. Thank you that we don't need to rely on me or Ron or any pastor, but that every one of us can go home right now and read to find out if any of these things are true or not. You have blessed us incredibly by giving us your word, and I thank you for that. I pray, Father, that we would be a church, Village East, and Village Bible, that would seek to use your word to change our culture, because, God, it needs to change. So let us interpret your word in the way that you would, not as a battering ram, but but as something that can really change people's hearts. Make us more like your image in the way that we communicate that. In Jesus' name, I pray.